It's June 1979, and we're in an old courthouse in Halifax in West Yorkshire. More than 100 detectives working on Britain's biggest manhunt have been summoned by the lead investigator, Assistant Chief Constable George Oldfield. He's trying to catch a killer nicknamed the Yorkshire Ripper. A young detective constable, Chris Gregg, squeezes into a high balcony among the crowd of police. The lead detective sits below in the high chair of the courtroom. In front of him, a cassette machine. He presses a button, and across the wood-panelled room, a voice starts to ring out. It was deathly silent, and he went click and played it. I'm Jack. I see you are still having no luck catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George. Good Lord. You are no need catching me now. Them four years ago when I started. And they... I'm Jack. Your boys are letting you down, George, in that trolley accent. I reckon your boys are letting you down, George. And it felt as though this person was talking to us, or talking to George Oldfield about how we let him down. And um, I was nearly caught in Chapeltown. They can't be much good, can they? The only time they came near catching me was a few months back in Chapeltown. I was listening, and I could feel almost the hair standing up on the back of my neck. Over the last year, George Oldfield has received taunting letters from a man claiming to be the killer. Letters the experienced detective is convinced are genuine. Now, a recording from the writer, where before they had just handwriting to go on, now there's a voice. At the rate I'm going, I should be in the book of records. I think it's 11 up now, isn't it? Well, I'll keep on going for quite a while yet. The words are similar, the message the same. I'm the killer, I'm one step ahead of you. And a warning. I'm not quite sure when I'll strike again. But it will be definitely sometime this year. Maybe September, October. Even sooner if I get the chance. The talking on the tape lasts for 3 minutes and 14 seconds, ending with this eerie taunt. Well, it's been nice chatting to you, George. Yours, Chuck the Ripper. No good looking for fingerprints. You should know by now. It's clean as a whistle. See you soon. Bye. Hope you like the catchy tune at the end. Uh-huh. It cuts to a song, Thank You For Being A Friend, by Andrew Gold. Now, this had made number 42 in the charts in the previous year, and it would later become famous when re-recorded. It would be used as the theme tune to the Golden Girls sitcom. There's nothing funny about the impact of the tape on detectives. A North Eastern accent? 
that's new. Soon, when the tape's released to the public, the man who recorded it will become known as Wearside Jack, after the river which flows through Sunderland. Is this the most significant lead in the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper? And we've questioned dozens, hundreds of people in the time I'd been on it now, um, on this on the investigation for nearly a year. And I thought, I've a question like that. And straining every muscle almost to think, I spoke. And then going home after that, and everybody was now talking about this in the investigation team, who the hell is this? Geordie accent, Geordie accent. And thinking, remember, yeah, not sleeping properly, thinking, I was thinking, almost going through everybody I'd spoken to, thinking, did they have an accent like that? I could not get this voice out of my mind. My name's Robert Murphy. This is Behind the Crimes. A word of warning, this is a crime podcast. There may be language and descriptions you might find affecting. Listener discretion is advised. This three-part miniseries describes the hunt for Peter Sutcliffe, who went by a nickname deemed appropriate in the 1970s. This phrase is extremely distressing to the families of the victims, and I have avoided using it wherever possible. But sometimes, unfortunately, it is the only term I can use. This miniseries is called Deadly Deception, Episode 2, Wearside Jack. The tape seemed to change everything, but many investigators had big doubts. Then, of course, with the handwriting and the huge then, uh, publicity that went with this, that came in the coming days, it just was like a juggernaut going. And what happened was that the, um, the experts, the voice experts who listened to this, said that in their view, and they were absolutely right with this, in their view, the, um, the author of that tape is from the Castletown area of Sunderland. So, wow. So suddenly we've got a Sunderland connection coming into the West Yorkshire, Manchester uh, inquiry. And quickly... Part of our team was taken up to Sunderland and to work with the, you know, the, the Sunderland police in trying to find the, the guy up in that neck of the woods because there were also dates on, stamped on the envelopes and on the tape packaging when these had been posted and they were all postmarked Sunderland, 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 various dates of posting. And quickly the emphasis changed. And this was in... You know, one of the major mistakes that was made in, in not keeping the investigation separate, find the person who sent the tapes and the letter, find the killer. They were put together. And suddenly in our briefcases, we didn't just have the murder dates of Wilma McCann, Josephine Whitaker, and Ritka as alibi dates. We had the dates, the letters were posted. And this was now becoming, we thought, a little bit dangerous. And one of the other things that within the investigation team, like all institutions, the staff talk, and we were talking, you know, the detectors, and there were, there were schools of thought saying, oh, this is, this is 
this doesn't feel safe that we're doing this, eliminating on these letters, because what if they're not right? And so there was this disquiet that was amongst the team. But George Oldfield was convinced. You'll remember he had good reasons to think the tapes and letters were genuine. The envelopes were licked by someone who had a blood group B. The serial killer had blood group B, as did the killer of Joan Harrison. Remember, she was the woman found in Preston in November 1975, a murder which hadn't yet been formally linked to these attacks. Oldfield ignored intelligence and analysis from victims and experts. Some women had managed to survive an attack by the serial killer. Two in particular had told police their attacker had an accent from Yorkshire. They, and international crime-fighting experts, said... The tapes were a deception. The FBI, I think, had said it was a hoax. Um, and also Olive Smelt, Marcella Claxton had both given descriptions of their attacker who was linked to the, the murders and clear West Yorkshire accent. But they were discounted. Yes, they did. And, and they were absolutely adamant this was not the accent of the person who had attacked them. What was happening at the time, though, I, I remember, there were a lot of different descriptions of the attacker coming in from various cases. On two of the murders, a man with a Land Rover with ginger hair had been seen. And this was a big thing. You know, so, and then on another murder, a man with a Jason King moustache, then a man with a beard. And I think all these things with witnesses' information, because half the time you're assuming a case is connected, but you're not entirely sure. <laughs> you haven't got a DNA um, profile to say that case is the same as that one. It's circumstances. And, and, and I think what was happening was that people who were making the decisions and, um, you know, the, the, the senior commanders, they were juggling all this information and thinking, well, what if Claxton, I, I'm, I'm speaking for them now, I'm, I'm only having been in that position myself, where until you know the answer, when everything is sublimingly obvious and you think, why didn't we get that soon? But until that happens, the minute before you put that light switch on and know who it is, the second, the millisecond before you put it on, you don't know. And, and everything is different. And you've got hundreds of thousands of people it could be and all these things, various information flying, because there's tons of information, different descriptions. Once you know everything fits, up until that point, it could be the ginger-haired guy with the Land Rover. And I suspect that what they were thinking was, yeah, okay, all these witnesses are probably giving their version of events, but they might be wrong. You know, they've been attacked. Could they have got it wrong? The guy could have been trying to put on a Yorkshire accent. I don't, you know, they, I don't know what they were thinking at the time to, to do that. Um, but um, they came down on the balance of everything to believing they were genuine. And, and you know, the, the rest is history. Three women lost their lives after that. I mean, the involvement of the hoaxer. Uh, would three women have, have survived afterwards? Nobody knows. Um, nobody knows the answer to that. But certainly his involvement did not help that investigation because it stripped a lot of resources away from where they were needed, back in West Yorkshire. It took the investigation, which was on the tracks, off the tracks, well and truly off the tracks. Yes, the tape was sent to police in June 1979. In the September of that year, the killer murdered a 21-year-old student in Bradford called Barbara Leach. Nearly a year would pass before his next killing in August 1980, Marguerite Walls in Leeds. And after three more attacks on women in which they survived, 
He claimed his 13th murder victim that we know about in November 1980. Her name was Jacqueline Hill. While women were being murdered in Yorkshire, a large part of the inquiry was still focused on Sunderland. There was 5,000 billboards put up, 300 newspaper ads. You know, nightclubs would be stopped so they could play this tape to nightclubbers. A million pounds, I think, was spent on on the, the publicity campaign. It was huge. I mean, anyone who was um, living in this part of the world at the time up in, in Yorkshire, it was massive. You know, this was all over the news. It was all over the towns. It was just for several years, it was the biggest thing happening in this part of the world. And the money that was spent with the publicity of this, it was designed to quickly find someone who would contact the police to say that handwriting and that voice is so-and-so. A little bit like what happened many years later in this part of the world by coincidence with Michael Sands who murdered Julie Gart and kidnapped Stephanie Slater. It happened with Crime Watch. His voice was played, somebody rang it. And, you know, that's what they were hoping for years before, pre-Michael Sams. And importantly, this voice becomes forever linked with the Ripper now. They're seen as the same person. And a man called Peter Sutcliffe had been questioned nine times and had been regarded by some detectives as a good suspect who required further investigation. Was it Detective Constables Andrew Laptew and Graham Greenwood had said we should be looking at this man, but that was dismissed? I look at the fact that he was questioned that amount of times and not arrested certainly towards the end of it, as, as, as a little bit with disbelief. Um, the, none of the officers had the full deck of information when they went to see Sutcliffe, certainly not in the earlier stages when they went to see him. And he was being alibied. He was picked up through lines of inquiry that had been designed to get the killer in the trap. In some ways, the inquiry to catch the serial killer was brilliant. In a moment, Chris Gregg will describe some outstanding policing. In three separate ways, Peter Sutcliffe's name came up. Firstly, in what became known as the £5 note inquiry, led by Greater Manchester Police's Jack Ridgway. Secondly, West Yorkshire Police's Jim Hobson set up two inquiries, the cross-area searches of red light districts and a tyre track inquiry. But none of the detectives who interviewed Sutcliffe realised the full picture of the man they were talking to. Those three lines of inquiry did the trick in terms of identifying the killer. Ridgeway's team from Manchester did a superb job, absolutely superb with a capital S, in the £5 note that was recovered from the victim of Jean Jordan, who'd been murdered by the serial killer. There are lots of names in these episodes, but you may remember me mentioning Jean Jordan last time. In October 1977, the 20-year-old mother of two, a sex worker, disappeared from Manchester. Her body was found 10 days later. She'd been mutilated after her death, police believed. This made them think her killer had returned a few days after he'd taken her life. But why? Why come back? 
detectives found her handbag a short distance away. Inside the bag's secret compartment was a newly printed £5 note. It had a serial number, AW51121565. Had the killer wanted to retrieve his money? Did he think it was traceable? He was right to worry. A serial number on a £5 note led detectives to the door of a man called Peter Sutcliffe. Ridgeway's team, working with the middle bank at Shipley, they had thousands upon thousands of, of, of ways people who this, this £5 note could have ended, ended up in the hands of. But they, through a, a real dedicated, detailed piece of work, they narrowed this down. They, they felt it had come from a payroll. And they narrowed this down to about 34 firms with some six or 7,000 staff working amongst them. Uh, one of those firms was um, T.W. Clark's in Bradford. One of the employees was Peter Sutcliffe, the haulage company, wagon driver. And he, amongst with all the other staff, was questioned. He was one of the, one of the nine times he was questioned. And, of course, he was um, alibied by his wife. He was one of just thousands, so nothing, OK, can accept that in a way. He's alibied, you know, why does he show out more than others? The cross-area sightings brought Sutcliffe's name up to detectives again. The system was set up in Huddersfield, Bradford, Leeds, Manchester. 33 observation points, covert, where detectives, 100 detectives every night were spread around these areas. And I did this for some weeks myself in Huddersfield. Sat in a car in the red light area, positioned so that you could see the rear number plate, not the front one because the headlights were dazzling at night. So all the observation points were, were set and the, the theory behind it, which was spot on, was that the killer is potentially driving through red light areas, looking, weighing things up, and these are the towns that they maybe are visiting. So the idea was, put detectives covertly in these areas in cars where they could just be tucked away in the shadows, taking all the car numbers. But people were slowing down and punting. And that's what happened in all these various towns, or, or, or these towns, Huddersfield, Bradford, Leeds, Manchester. And cross-area sightings became a line of inquiry. So as the senior investigating officer would, would decide, right, how, how am I going to manage this? Because... We can't go and see it. And the first night, there was something like 2,000 cars, you know. What they were doing was um, cross-area sighting. So all this information would go, be fed that night, all typed up. And the police national computer was in its early stages, and they were trying to get information out. But a line of inquiry was, if there was somebody who had visited two areas, they were called a cross-area sighting. If they visited three areas, there were a triple area sighting. So cross area sightings, they were a priority. So I would go as a detective then and question people who had been flagged up as a cross area sighting between Bradford and Leeds in the red light areas. But we didn't go and knock on the door and say, hey, Mr. So-and-so, you've been seen in two red light districts at 10 o'clock at night over the last few weeks. What were you doing? Because that would blow the whole covert. <laughs> you know, this would cover us. So we had to go and um, just try and 
elicit information from them without them re realizing why we're asking. And so it was, it was all a bit cat and mouse. Sutcliffe had been seen on a triple area sighting and there was an, an action race to go and see him. And the detectives who saw him at that point, they didn't have the full information about he'd, he'd been on the five pound note inquiry in uh, Jack Ridgeway's inquiry that was found on Gene Jordan. They didn't have the full information. And the third inquiry, looking at the tyre tracks, police could have noticed information linking him to the fourth murder. One of the other factors that we had, as in, uh, which we had to do when we went to see suspects, was that the scene of the Irene Richardson murder was some tyre tracks. And in those days, cross plies and radials were the order of the day and you, you didn't mix them on axles and all this stuff. Well, there were... Um, Two of the tyre tracks from memory were Esso uh, make tyres, and one was, um, and the other were in India and Esso. And they were of a certain combination on the axles. So we had to very discreetly, when we were going to see the suspects, we had to check the car, obviously, and we had to, because we were looking for these tyre combinations. The tyre investigation had um, narrowed down to something like 55,000 cars that could have had this combination of tyres on. And in there were a load of different cars, but one of them was a Corsair. But they were in with all sorts of other cars. It wasn't just Corsair. I'm pretty sure that, from what I've learned afterwards, that certainly a Corsair was there with those tyres on when some of the officers went and spoke to them on one of those nine occasions, and they weren't checked. I think it was there to be had. And there were elements that, you know, and towards the end, it got rid of that car then. I think it was, you know, there was one occasion when they could have had it. And then he got rid of that car and he had another car. So when they came and he had a sunbeam rapier or something like that, of course, they didn't have the tyres on it. There were other details. In April 1979, Josephine Whitaker was murdered, bitten by her attacker, a man with a gap in his teeth. Sutcliffe had one. Now, this was pre-computers in inquiry rooms and the records were all on paper a mountain of paper. Complex cases were harder to solve before computers, but they were solvable if the system of index cards and cross-referencing was done properly. Mistakes in the inquiry room and by some detectives on the streets meant Sutcliffe evaded capture. Also, importantly, he had the Bradford accent two of his surviving victims described, not a Sunderland accent from the tape. The fly on the fly paper, getting the killer in the net, the lines of inquiry, we're doing it. It's just that the guy's knocking on the door and the people, you know, in the incident room who were charged with getting all the information correctly filed so it could be pulled out, cross-referenced. There were breakdowns. There were breakdowns in the systems of administration and I think on the detective side at the front end there, you know, that, and, you know, you mentioned that there was um, an occasion where uh, the two detectives who'd spoken to him were really, really suspicious. And rightly so. Rightly so, they should have been suspicious because of the information that they had, they didn't have the full uh, jigsaw there, but they, they had certain pieces. And they were rightly suspicious of this guy. You know, he'd been, he'd been alibied by his mother-in-law on one occasion. 
saying that um, oh, on the mur- it was oh, it was the night that um, that it had Manchester police had worked out the night that he must have gone back to take the five pound note from uh, Gene Jordan that he'd left, and that was an alibi uh, date, and so he was seen as a result of that because. Um, the five pound note, where were you on that night? And his mother-in-law g- gave a statement saying that he, oh, he was at a housewarming party. But what she failed to mention was that he'd taken a couple of people home from the housewarming party and been gone for hours. Yeah, because he'd gone over to Manchester. So all these things were playing in. So yeah, the, there were some monumental mistakes made there. And what happened when he the two detectives who had serious suspicion about him. And, and, and I, know, um, I know one of the detectives well. Um, the, detective, the detectives went back and, and reported back saying, and at the time there was a, a directive out, you couldn't just go and arrest someone without having George Oldfield's permission. So you couldn't just spontaneously arrest someone it was now there was a barrier, you know, you had to go and seek permission to do that before. You obviously didn't want people acting on that, their own initiative to that degree. So um, they went back and, and spoke to um, the senior commanders um, about it and, uh, and pleading the case, you know, this guy needs more looking at. And they were told that oh, if he hasn't got a Geordie accent, because this was now, things had descended even further by this point. We were eliminating on handwriting and on post, postage dates of letters. Now, it was going a step further into eliminating just on, uh, on um, Geordie accent. So this was the, the latest directive from the top. So... When those officers went and, and said, you know, we think this guy, Peter Sipcliffe from Bradford, blah, 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 has he got a Geordie accent? Well, no, but we still think he's, yeah, he needs looking at. And they were, they were dismissed. Now, why Dick Holland dismissed them? I don't know. He, he obviously felt that um, we've got to stick to the elimination criteria. We've set it. This, you know, there's... there's no movement around that. A fatal mistake. You know, he, he should have been. He should have been investigated further. Then, or clearly investigated further. He should have been coming out in handcuffs that day. On the night of January the second, nineteen eighty-one, two police officers on patrol spotted a car with false number plates. This was in Sheffield, a place the serial killer hadn't operated before. The driver was with a sex worker. It didn't feel right to the officers. He matched some of the physical descriptions of the killer. The man said he was bursting for a pee, so they let him go before arresting him. He was called Peter Sutcliffe. The South Yorkshire officers checked him with their West Yorkshire colleagues, and he was taken for questioning. A later search of the area where he'd gone to urinate found a knife, a hammer and a rope. The game was up. It was... The instinct, wasn't it, of two police officers or a police officer in South Yorkshire and Sheffield who, who ended up catching Sutcliffe. What was that moment like for you? I've had several moments in my career where that sense of relief um, is overwhelming in a way because you just feel that 
you know who this person is now. It's finished. You know, nobody else is going to lose their life. And, and I can think of another couple of cases that, that that feeling was very similar to. He wasn't going to stop. But I remember just sensing that, oh, my God, thank God, it, we, he's been caught. And, you know, the guys in, um, in Sheffield who, who made the arrest, um, they, they did a, a really good job there. But a guy called Detective Inspector Desert Boyle did a superb job as well. And he was part of the Ripper murder team, um, just a top detective. And he, thankfully, you know how you need the right people in the right place at the right time. Desert Boyle was, um, was the guy who was working as the, the detective that night, the detective inspector that night who took that call. Um, and he was sharp as a needle. Go back, check the drums where he was found, and they found that he slipped a hammer down. And he was directing things, and he got um, on it very quickly. And it was Des um, and his colleague who um, brought Sutcliffe back up to Yorkshire, uh, back up to West Yorkshire, and and interviewed him. And yeah, did yeah, got huge respect for Des. Um, he's never spoken about that, but um, huge respect for him. It was, um, as you described, a moment of huge uh, relief, not just, of course, among the police policing world, but I, I think the country as a as a whole. But at what point did it become evident that Peter Sutcliffe did indeed have a Bradford accent and not um, a Sunderland accent? And what were you thinking? What were what were the thoughts then? Was it just relief that he's caught and let's look at that another day? Or was, oh my God, we've made a huge mistake in some ways here? That wasn't the feeling at the time. At the feeling at the time, it was just incredible relief that this guy has been caught. The fact that he hadn't got the accent, that was, um, that was something that, we, yeah, it, it added up. He hadn't got the accent because of, you know there was that disquiet there anyway that this wasn't quite right. Um, but in terms of the arrest that had been made, it was it was just an incredible relief that we're, we're not going to be going to any more murder scenes. It was that you know that sense of this is over. You know, nobody else is going to lose the life. The whole the whole um, county was. Um, on, on a state of high alert and fear. But, you know, the, when he was arrested, it was, um, it was now, what, what has he done? You know, have the murders that have been attributed to him, has he done these? What attacks has he done? What else has he done? And I know that was the kind of, from an investigator's point, it was more about what, right, Des and his team who were dealing with him, When in custody, Sutcliffe was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. He admitted the manslaughter of 13 women on the grounds of diminished responsibility, but he denied their murder. He was later convicted and imprisoned. One count he was not charged with was the murder of Joan Harrison in Preston, 1975. He was sentenced to life uh, in um, May 1981. At that point, what thought was there towards the tapes about whether they should be investigated and what work should be looked at there? In terms of the tapes and, and the what was now the hoax, you know, it wasn't known until that time it was a hoax. The hoax suspected possibly, but not known. 
um, it seemed to fall into the background. The, the main thrust was, what's Peter Sutcliffe done? And there was plenty of other crimes and murders that he was suspected of. He was convicted of 13 murders and seven attempts. Um, there was a lot of, obviously, is he mad or is he bad? You know, with his defence at court. Uh, this was all swilling around. And I think the whole country just wanted him to be um, convicted of what he'd done, the crimes he'd done, and, and fairly and justly convicted. They didn't want him to be having any kind of um, defence accepted that was not correct. You know, so focus was on the trial, focus was on him and what, what he'd done and what he hadn't done. The actual letter writer and the sender of the tapes just seemed to fall into history a little bit. And I think that the force as a whole at this point in, say, early 80s, the early 80s, it was a period of West Yorkshire Police now, there was a stigma hanging over the force then and lasted for four years um, from this case, you know, the mistakes that were made on the case. And it was tarnished, you know, and rightly so in, 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 in many ways. But the force image had been tarnished, undoubtedly. And I, as a young detective, was just starting my career. And I was still 24, 24, and just be, had only been a detective a few months when appointed onto this case. So I was still at the very start of my career. And, um, and I, I felt it, as colleagues would, you know, that West Yorkshire Police's good name, which it had until that point, would be trashed. You know, it was trashed. Next time. The killer's in prison, but the hoaxer is free. Decades have passed and Chris Gregg, now a senior officer, wants to track him down using new science. We've got DNA. Can we have a go at them, you know? Oh, no, no, no. They've gone. They've gone, those letters. How the smallest sample gives Chris Gregg a name. Having worked with scientists over the years, I always know that some of the scientists often will keep a little bit of something from the item they're examining because they don't know what advances make them later. And, you know, they may cut out a, a bit of a blood sample, for example, and just keep a bit, send some for testing, keep a piece of the garment carefully preserved. And for the first time, face to face with Wearside Jack. 25 years on, his voice has aged, but it's as chilling as ever. I say you are still having no luck catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George, but Lord, you are no near catching me now than four years ago when I started. Behind the Crimes is written, presented and produced by me, Robert Murphy. <laughs>